country that's too small for most artists to make a living and one that's been both fickle and underappreciative when it comes to the arts. That's how Roger Horrocks sees the eight decades of New Zealand art that he covers in his new book. But culture in a small country, the arts in New Zealand, also celebrates what our artists have achieved and continue to achieve despite all the obstacles in their way. Roger is an emeritus professor at the University of Auckland, a critic, poet and filmmaker. He's also one of the founders of the Auckland International Film Festival, Script to Screen and NZ on Screen. In his book, he expresses his frustration and scepticism when it comes to things like arts funding, the downgrading of arts education in our schools and the digital era. Roger says while artists are producing world-class work in Aotearoa, it's often despite rather than because they live here. In the course of my life, I've seen such extraordinary changes. I think of New Zealand as having gone through maybe four different New Zealands, or shall I say Aotearoa, uh, in my lifetime. We've had a, lots of, a lot of very big cultural earthquakes or uh, tsunamis, and we kind of react to them and carry on, but they need to be talked about. Um, the fact that uh, we were very British to start with when I was growing up. Uh, then there was a, a wonderful period of growth in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And then there's the coming of the digital, which is really, it's a wonderful piece of equipment, the computer, but it's also a Pandora's box. And it did some damage as well as give us some new tools. And then the pandemic. So we've lived through really an extraordinary period of change. And so writing history, I think, is a chance to think about it because I really don't think we have thought about it enough. We've, we've kind of just reacted and gone on. Touching on one of those issues you raised there, Roger, you know, our history is a former colony. And for the longest time, you know, New Zealanders were drawn towards work that came from overseas, that carried an overseas seal of approval, you write. Have we moved well past that now? Well, I, I grew up in the 1940s and 1950s, which is the period you're describing. I think it's very hard for people born later to realise just how British it was. I mean, if you were interviewing me in those days, you would have had to speak like a BBC announcer with, you know, received pronunciation. And if we went to the movies, we would stand up for God Save the Queen. Uh, if not, the person behind you might very well bump you over the head with your umbrella. Um, it was a very different situation. When I went to school, uh, we studied British history, we, we read British literature, no New Zealand stuff. And uh, we definitely have got beyond that. Throughout the book, too, you reflect on New Zealanders and governments' attitudes towards the arts, and you describe it as fickle. This country generally has been fickle in its relationship with the arts, regarding them as an optional extra. Has that been true throughout our history, would you say? Not always. Uh, I mean, I was just reading this morning, though, the arts funding in Germany is just extraordinary. They've worked so hard to make sure that during the pandemic, artists are supported because they value, absolutely value that, that side of their culture. New Zealand has had politicians who care about the arts. I mean, I think of Helen Clark, for example, or Judith Tizard or uh, Chris Finlayson. There have been politicians who do care, but the arts really are marginal to the New Zealand government. 
And if you think of core government funding, if you think of what's 1% of core government funding, and then you divide that by 100, that is what is given each year to the arts in New Zealand. Also, of course, there's a whole business of, you know, sport and overseas activities tend to be more to our taste. There are exceptions to that. We do have some very good people who are involved in arts funding, but uh, it's the facts of life talk uh, to, to somebody who would like to be an artist has to take into account that you're going to have to work very hard. In, in many countries, you have cultural, you do cultural work as a job, but here in New Zealand, you tend to have a job so you can afford to do cultural work. I mean, to be fair, though, Roger, when you're talking about the pandemic or the COVID-19 funding in other countries, I mean, here we were looking at hundreds of millions of dollars um, over those two years. That's a substantial amount of money, wouldn't you say? I do spend a few pages in my book about mistakes they made. They, for example, refused to accept that books and magazines were essential items during the, the pandemic. And there's some very strange funding decisions, which I do try and document. But, um, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. I think the Ministry of Culture and Heritage actually said that the arts suffered probably worse than almost any other area. This is comprehensive, but as you say, you couldn't include all of the art forms. So you've chosen popular and classical music, films, I know something very dear to your heart, visual arts and publishing. All really interesting examples, I thought. And, and when you're writing about publishing, you, you talk through that time not so very long ago, it feels where a whole lot of the big publishing houses were merging or pulling out. But now, of course, we have the rise and rise of the boutique or the, the, the niche publishers. I find that quite exciting, really. And the, these publishers now well recognised, say, in the New Zealand and Children's Book Awards, for example. I mean, these are positive things, surely. Yes, uh, well, I have to be very grateful to a, a niche publisher uh, who's published my two books. That's the Atua Nui Press, and uh, it's thanks to them. So I do think that's a very, very exciting development, but these are small publishers, and after three or four books, many of them expire. Uh, what has happened is that the large corporates uh, who came here in the mostly in the 1970s and 80s because they realised that suddenly there were enough New Zealanders reading books and writing books to create a, a literary culture. So suddenly, overnight, we had this marvellous expansion in the 70s and 80s where all the big overseas publishers came and opened branches. And as a result, they discovered so many of our great writers from that period. But they have all now suffered from corporate restructuring. And so many of them have disappeared, left the country or downsized. We still have one or two of them, but they are mostly now either based in Australia or have gone back to Britain or Germany or wherever they came from. And it's marvelous to see these little small publishers who are also hugely aided by the new digital publishing technology, but the books have still got to be distributed. And we have fewer bookshops. A lot of bookshops have, have disappeared over the pandemic and, and so on. And it's very hard for those books to reach overseas audiences. 
So I think it's, it's the story of New Zealand is we have to keep reinventing the wheel. And uh, in the case of publishing, we're doing that again. And, you know, God bless those little publishers who are trying. Towards the end, you're, I feel, giving a really direct message to audiences, to politicians and to business leaders, Roger, to say it's almost use it or lose it. You know, appreciate the art, fund them properly. I mean, what are you hoping that this will achieve this book? Well, I'm basically writing history rather than a polemic. I am definitely working very hard to write history, but I'm very glad that you got that implication from it. I think that in a way, what the pandemic has done is it's made us more aware of what we really value because we are starting to lose or have lost so much. And I feel that uh, this there are things in the book, particularly the value of the arts, uh, which we are really in danger of losing. You see it most clearly in, the, in education. From primary school through to the universities, the arts have been downsized in the last two decades uh, because of the rise of what are called the STEM subjects, science, uh, engineering, technology, and mathematics. And they're really important subjects, but they're only half the picture. Are we not ambitious to... For, for human beings to develop to their full potential. And we also desperately need the arts. And I was very pleased to see uh, Professor Peter O'Connor the other day uh, at the university saying that there has really been almost, he called it, the murder of creativity in many areas of education, such as the downsizing of, of English departments and, and uh, the teaching of creative work in schools. Although I am basically writing a history, uh, it is true that um, I have some fairly uh, passionate messages to attempt to convey. I actually wrote chapters on theatre and uh, dance, and they're very interesting stories. So I wrote chapters about them and also about jazz and also about um, craft and object art. Uh, but the book just got too big. It's about 500 pages as it is. So I do have these chapters, performance art, ballet, and so dance. The interesting thing about all these art forms that I studied is I found that almost the same things happened at the same times in almost all of them. So in the case of theatre, you know, that wonderful period of the 60s and 70s when Roger Hall appeared and, and uh, downstage was created and uh, theatre started to take off locally. And at first... Roger Hall said, saying that something was a New Zealand play was like putting a health warning on a play. But we got beyond that. We, we got beyond that kind of cultural cringe. And the story follows through the other huge things that happened in theatre that also happened in the other arts in my book is the fact that women have become increasingly present in the arts. From particularly from the, say, about the mid-80s, suddenly the majority of most talked about people in the visual arts, in literature, were women. And the same thing is very true today. And uh, the other thing, of course, is, is the Maori input. Uh, the Maori dimension became increasingly strong. And uh, along with the rest of the diversity, queer writers, LGBT+, I mean, it, uh, they've really added so much. And immigrants, so, so much diversity 
has come into our, uh, into our arts. When I was growing up, New Zealand was a very monocultural country, I felt. But today, as Paul Spoonley reminds us, we are one of the most ethnically diverse countries in the world. The 40s and 50s were a really interesting time, weren't they? We spoke before about parochialism and the colonisation. Uh, but you remind us here that the audience wasn't familiar with modern art and felt an antagonism towards it, you're right, that was arguably even more intense than the opposition to modern literature. There was a lot going around in the 40s and 50s. So while there were um, artists you mentioned like uh, Toss Williston and Colin McCarr and Rita Angus, you know, trying to trying to get their work out there, it was very hard for them to get it understood. Again, when do you think that changed and we opened our minds more to diversity well, and, and art and music and film, that kind of thing? One of the things that I talk about is, is what, what is called infrastructure. In the case of the visual arts, there were missing so many missing pieces of the jigsaw. One of them was dealer galleries. Colin McCann and Rita Angus could make paintings. Toss Williston could make paintings, but they didn't have dealer galleries to sell them. And that really didn't happen until the 1960s. And when finally people like Peter Webb and um, Barry Lett and people like that started to act as dealers. And suddenly you had a support system. And it was that support system. Also, the, the galleries, the public art galleries, were terribly fudsy and old fashioned uh, in the 1940s and 50s. And then we got some overseas directors who modernize them. And that was a marvelous uh, change. But it certainly wasn't without its uh, controversies. There was an exhibition of Henry Moore, and the mayor of Auckland described it as so blasphemous, he wanted to close it down. But through those fights, which made art very interesting, actually, you know, I almost miss some of that these days, because it was such a such a fight to to get the modern into New Zealand culture. Film is another area that's had you know, a huge amount of change because of technology. I mean, how do you read the, the film industry? Well, that's one of my favourite stories because when I was growing up in New Zealand, in the first 23 years of my life, there were only three New Zealand films. And a New Zealand feature film was a very, very rare event. And uh, in the 1970s, we suddenly saw the emergence of a feature film industry. And I think it's a, a fantastic story. I uh, was involved in a very small way in it myself. That's one of the major stories in my book um, is, is how we got a feature film industry. Because if we don't tell our stories on the screen, um, it makes a huge difference. And it also means that overseas countries don't see New Zealand and uh, don't even know about us. Culture in a Small Country, The Arts in New Zealand by Roger Horrocks is published by Atuanui Press. Uh, Roger will be discussing the book this Tuesday at the Amatea Centre as part of the Auckland Writers' Festival.